Dave, we've just kind of came out of college um, in 2002. <coughs> I went to Royal College of Art, and um, this piece was done in my girlfriend's aunt's flat, and um, it was me trying to transform the materials directly, rather than clay going into a kiln and disappearing. I was trying to do things like, and make the processes of production as evident as possible, so that became the work. And, this really changed everything for me, this Dubai fire, because um, it gave me portability, so I could pick things up and just take them to other places, so I wasn't bound to a gallery necessarily. And I did, I did, I did change the nature of, of what I was doing fundamentally through this, through this work. So um, it began with these, these pieces around fire bars, and I continue to return to them every now and then. I, I think of them as occasional objects, because I do them four occasions and I do them occasionally and they kind of appear here and there throughout kind of my, my practice. But um, that then led to, to work in a, a cafe. I got um, a commission from Camden Art Centre to work with um, the Rosemont Cafe, which was which was the cafe that they that they used, um, the technicians used when the when the gallery uh, exhibitions being set up and I worked within with the fires that were in, installed in the in the cafe and wrapped them in clay and um, I was using a very simple number sequence. The colours represent um, the, the electrical resistance code, which are numbers one to nine. So I started to use almost like a coding within the, within the colouring of the clay. And this denotes how many days the cafe owner had worked consecutively um, since he'd last had a break. And it was something like four, four and a half thousand days. And so I, I was commemorating that, um, that event and this ongoing kind of accumulation. And often the work is commemorative in, in many respects. It's often quite fleeting and it's about a moment, um, sometimes quite a long moment, sometimes incredibly short. And, and there's an unpredictability in, in, in what, what I do. Um, I don't know myself quite what's gonna happen. And so when I switch on, um, we're all in the same boat in that we're all therefore spectators and things can be um, can work well in terms of clay can can cook or it can as in this case just explode and as people were eating their lunch one of the fires just cascaded ceramics kind of round round the room and um, I that increasingly then for me became like a like the analogy became a rocket launch. So you go to the rocket launch, the work's in place, and there could be a number of outcomes that come out of that. And I've, I've kind of held on to that as, as, I've, as I've worked over numerous projects. And um, kind of this, was, this was the last one that I did in 2015, and I just like this double play of fire, real fire, imitation fire. Um, I'll just say my parents have got a, a fire like this, and. Um, they don't put the fire on, they just put the electric light on and that's, that's enough for them to, to feel that it's warm in the, in the room. And so this fact that there might be some kind of forest fire and yet it's electrically generated, to me is quite appealing. And um, I'm from Birmingham, well, West Bromwich, but um, this, this was an iconic building for me growing up in the, in the 70s in, in the Midlands. And it was bombed in um, 19... 1974, and at the Royal College, I started to make work about these buildings, and you know, I often use that kind of urban landscape as a, as a starting point for works. And so I, I made a, 
a small-scale ver scale version of this rotunda building, filled it with cooker rings and uh, had a mixture of clay and sugar um, that when the, when the work was switched on um, would begin to, to kind of melt down over a period of a, a couple of hours. And it kind of started out really quite beautiful in that it smelled like um, candy floss because the sugar was burning and then it became a little bit more acrid and then um, ultimately became quite difficult to stay, to stay in the room. And I quite enjoyed playing with the audience, I think, and, uh, and challenging both, both myself, but also challenge, challenging the audience as, as well. And then as I left the Royal College, I, I made this work a, a column. I worked to substantially weaken the structure of the Royal College of Art. And essentially, I'd taken the central pillar that supports the Royal, the Royal College. And um, I, had, I had a very, this was my space for the show. I, I, I had a kind of small area, but essentially, this was my, my work. So I clad it with, with clay and heating elements that were specially made. And if it had been switched on, it would have, the heat would have essentially melted that central column and the Royal College would have collapsed. And it was, it was my thank you, really, to the Royal College for... Uh, for two years, and um, I made it for real. In, if it had been switched on, um, it would have done a job. And the only thing that I kind of, the only concession really was that I, I took the, they took the fuses out. So, um, and one day the cleaners had come in and got the plugs mixed up, and they had actually plugged it in. So um, perhaps as well that 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 was the case. And because it's raw clay and it's kind of waiting, it's 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 potential really to to transform, if it, if it doesn't take place, if the, if the event doesn't necessarily come through to the full transformation, then it's a raw material that can be used again. So I showed it um, shortly after graduating. I did a residency in North Devon and I used the, the column. I, I, it was collapsed at this point and it was on show in the gallery. And then day in, day out, I, I systematically made a replica set of Encyclopedia Botanica. And um, this idea that knowledge, knowledge is power is a kind of obvious metaphor, but a lot, a lot of my work, I think, is about this kind of the metaphor of the, what that transformation might mean and what it might mean personally, but, but also perhaps socially. And so the idea that the Britannic, Encyclopedia Britannica holds all this knowledge, holds all this power, and that we might, through that, um, transform ourselves and our lives, to me, to me, continues to have relevance. And I'm just about to, to do a new piece um, based on this, whereby I'm working with six libraries in Stoke-on-Trent and we're gonna cook a whole set of books that um, are connected to the history of those six towns in Stoke. And that'll be part of a kind of major show in, um, in 2017. So, so these things do run, these ideas that are set up some years ago continue to, to kind of have a, have a kind of further trajectory when I get an opportunity. And um, continue to develop this, this idea of a, of, a, of a live firing of people being invite, invited to see this material change. And this was a work uh, made for a permanent gallery, artist-run space in Brighton. And I'd worked with the Rotunda in Birmingham and this was, this was about the Grand Hotel, which was similarly bombed in 1984. And I think I, I, I'm drawn to these buildings that have gone through some kind of trauma. So um, I wanted to recreate this, this point, of, point of change. So I made my version of the, of the Grand Hotel, 
the color coding is in there in terms of denoting the date that, that the whole um, bombing took place. And then over the course of the, um, the evening, the work, the work was switched on and began to, began to cook. Um, the whole thing was live and, it, and the work was condemned, I think, 20 minutes before the exhibition was due to, um, due to start. So what you see in this picture is the audience standing outside the gallery looking in because if you wanted to come in, you had to sign a waiver saying that your life might be in danger and um, you're accepting that risk. So most people stayed outside, but about 20 of us stayed inside and uh, it was your choice. So the work sometimes is shown post-firing in terms of its, the state that it gets to, and, and that was the case in, in here. Um, I was invited by Gasworks and the Arts Council to, to be an artist in residence in India, and that was, that was quite a challenge in terms of using a, a very different scenario, a very different culture, but using clay, using electrical fittings, I made um, a work called 100 Bulbs for 100 People, whereby um, they were dipped in clay and then dipped into all these other materials to show um, a kind of range of, of colours that were available, but also back to the system, the electrical system that I'd used, those colours denoted a number and you could take it home and you were left with a choice then. You could put in the bulb and by switching it on you would, you would transform it, but at the same time there was an equal and maybe greater chance that you might blow the bulb. So you, you were left with a choice in terms of what state you wanted to take it. And I've continued to use that festoon, that idea of the, the light bulb, and I've done a number of works whereby I've combined clay, um, in this case, um, um, resin that, that holds incense um, that they're used in churches. And this was at Dilston Grove. And um, it was a work made, made in the first cast concrete church that was built in the UK. So I used those materials along with incense and tried to re-consecrate the church for one night by burning, burning the incense within the, within the bulbs or on the bulbs. I've also done a, a work in a, a kind of former Chinese restaurant. So this is clay and five, Chinese five spice. And again, by switching it on, hopefully I'm filling a space with an evocation really of a, of a, former, of a former life of the building. Um, I've had an ongoing relationship with the V&A and um, often my work is not, it doesn't exist really after the event and I think museums have, are grappling, have grappled with, with how do you show this kind of work that, that is maybe less permanent and can't go into a collection. So the Friday late open has become a vehicle to show maybe alternative approaches to, to what ceramics might be and perhaps what what an object and what collecting might be. So I produced this work called Last Supper, which was um, a series of works or a series of cookers that had been uh, um, taken down to the local recycling depot in Plymouth, where I live. And I'd, I'd taken the elements out and I took the measurements of the ovens and I, and I re, remade those, those blocks and put the original elements back in. And this was, was, this was its last switching on. And I used the color coding there taken from Leonardo's um, fresco. And over the course of two to three hours, um, the, work, the work slowly cooked block, block by block. It was never gonna, it was never gonna trans transform completely, but just around the elements, um, there was just a, a small amount of uh, change. And for me, that's a success. And 
Now, I'm, maybe we can talk a little bit about success and failure later on, but um, some of the works have kind of partial firing, some have none at all, and you know, I'd, I'll take that on as part of what the work, the range of what the work might achieve. And I tried to do two, two pieces that night. I made a, a replica of the Scalextric uh, replica of the M25 London Orbital, and there were two lines of blue um, cobalt, which is a, a blue um, ceramic pigment, and it was a, a, a powdered glass. And if, if the tracks had been switched on, there would have been a 42-meter um, glass ribbon of uh, running around the track. And um, I'd kind of got sponsorship from a, low, uh, a CNC company up in the West Midlands. We had the track running in and out of the sculpture court. But it was taking 415 volts. And every time I switched it on, I tripped the, um, the museum's electrical system. and. Um, so I think numerous times we were trying and the audience were waiting but I just couldn't get this one to kind of spark up and um, the audience seemed okay about it but I, I felt slightly devastated even though I accept that you know these things might not work to to be in that environment and for the whole thing just to keep on kind of collapsing down felt like a in my own head a kind of minor tragedy but uh, I'll probably come to terms with it a little bit more now and um, I, I've done a number of works with Camden Art Centre, and this was this was using um, almost taking the idea of ceramics and its and clay and its capacity to change, but adapting it into other materials. So this was this this came off the back of an Indian residency um, in Delhi, and I'd made a small kind of um, what I called family nan. I'd made a rug in the studio out of nan bread and cooked it as part of the opening. So I took a, a fitted carpet from Plymouth. Um, that was being thrown out, 20 Whittenden Street, and I recreated that um, that carpet in in naan bread, and I think I've probably made the biggest naan bread in in the world actually, and I should be credited. Um, <laughs> but um, I used spices to recreate the um, the pattern on top, and then there's there's heating elements underneath, and so this was a, this was another one that cooked over a number of hours, and. Um, with the intention that you would ultimately get this cooked this cook nan. And the spices, like the light bulbs, started off quite pleasant and then became really, really acrid. And people were pretty much kind of crawling out on their knees um, to get out of the building. And I think I went back to Camden Art Centre about three, four weeks later and you could still smell this um, burning spice. So sometimes they have an unexpected after afterglow. And then kind of one of the la latter ones of um, kind of larger scale installation. Um, often think of these works in terms of performance and, and time span. And so I did this work, which was inspired by Karl Marx's tomb at Highgate. Um, and in the same tomb, there was, there was Karl Marx, or in the same um, cemetery, Karl Marx, Michael Faraday. So you've got the kind of pioneer of kind of political thought and a pioneer of electrical energy. And I just... I wanted to bring these two together. Michael Faraday used to do these public public lectures, um, whereby he would demonstrate the the kind of latest the latest inventions. And to a certain extent, I think I think of myself in in the same way. I'm trying to put this work out into a public domain and and show these experiments. And it also connects to my own family history. This is this is my dad. Um, he was trained as an electrician. Then. Um, 
worked uh, at Aston University in the electrical engineering department doing testing for um, uh, heaters and boilers. And in my mind, I'm, I'm kind of doing the same thing. And I've often used both my dad as a kind of technical um, source, but also someone who comes in and, and has done wiring for past projects, and my brother, who's an electrician as well. So it's become quite a, a kind of family affair. And to me, this is the equivalent. This is the wiring up for this work. And what I was trying to do is use these, um, use this power source at one end of the room, the Faraday. It was a replica of Faraday's um, table that he used to demonstrate on at the Royal Institute. And by connecting up Karl Marx's tomb, I, I wanted to, to heat and, and change material, the, the clay material, so his head, which is pink at the moment, would go from pink, pink to red. And um, I kind of got through a number of meters. Every day it was switched on, and um, it was kind of working quite well. And then the, it, was, it was a set of instructions, and the people who, who were um, asked to do it, I think there was a couple of um, the, 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 the car batteries got wired up wrong, and the car batteries started to, uh, to heat up and then ultimately set on fire. And so... Um, Unfortunately, it was just at the point that there was a primary school in there for their um, school visit as well. So the whole museum was locked down and um, that was the end of the work, unfortunately. Um, and, and music has become, in terms of electrical energy, I've also tried to work around what that might be. It might be quite direct uh, as, a, as a source, but it could also be through other electrical sources, such as sound, such as smell. Um, other sensory kind of ways that we might perceive um, kind of electrical energy. So I started just experimenting really with, with two turntables to see whether I could use ceramics and, and a kind of replica of New Order's Blue Monday and play the ceramic version and the, and the original version. And I started to do that just as a kind of impromptu um, performance really and a whole set of my replicas of, of, of New Order Blue Monday um, which I produced for, for Camden Art Centre for a kind of fundraising so we sold them as bootleg APs and it just set this idea of, of, of using sound and what, what sound that might what sound might start to do to material and I was inspired by Herzog's Fitzcarraldo and the character um, sailing down on, on a boat to, um, to try and claim a piece of land to build an opera house. So he, he was trying to communicate through sound into the, into the jungle and also needed to take a ship over the mountain. And these, along with kind of interest in reggae sound systems and carnival floats and, and London riots that were happening around the time, I proposed kind of what what sound might do as a blast, as a blast through material, and, and start to create my own sound systems. Um, often use drawing as a way of initiating projects. And so a series of drawings took me to a point where I, I made an application to Jerwood um, Visual Arts and was accepted, and made this sound system, which was um, a combination of clay filling all the speakers and a, and a thousand piezo transducers, which are a very a kind of ceramic speaker, a very um, low energy speaker, which gave the, the treble and then the bass was all kind of locked in. So everything was compressed and locked away. And the idea was that by playing through this sound system, gradually the clay would begin to fall away and the sound would come out. And it was hugely 
more than the, the, than the capacity of the space. So if, if all the sound had come out, it would have taken out the windows which were, which were opposite. So there was, there was a kind of tension at play. And I kind of put on my um, tracksuit as a kind of homage to, to the character in Fitzcarraldo, and maybe also a nod to the riots that were happening at that point. And, and every, every so often when I got the chance, I would, I would get on top of the sound system and, and play. And that toured for around, around the UK um, to a number of venues. And really, the kind of just as the last kind of piece, really, in terms of background, um, I, I was invited to be an artist in residence in, at the V&A Museum in the ceramics department. And so I wanted to produce something that was an alternative to um, the lunchtime concert. And they were really sedate affairs. You'd have a little, you'd have a quintet or quartet playing in one of the one of the rooms. And I, I just thought maybe I could do something that just that just undid that a little bit and um, disrupted um, just for a while. And so my first. Um, so I was in the same room as Lucy Lucy Rees' studio. My studio was next to this studio, a recreation of, a, of, of her former studio. And so I wanted to make a connection between her and myself. And um, she had two turntables and she had a radio in her studio. And this became the connection because that was the same radio as my own radio in my studio. So that just became the link for the piece. So I proposed to to use the potter's wheels that were in the studio and turn them into turntables. And I wanted to play out um, Napalm Death into, into the, the V&A ceramics galleries. So uh, I set up the potter's wheels, set up Napalm Death on one turntable, potter's wheel, and a clay version on the other. And using Lucy Rees techniques of um, painting with manganese slip and then scratching, scraffitoing through. I used the record needle to do the same. So I kind of, at a, at a given moment, I would just open the doors, set these up, and just play out this combination between uh, napalm death and, and ceramic um, um, being, being scratched. And it, it would transmit to two radios in the studio, but I also hope that it would also get picked up on the two-way walkie-talkies for all the staff in the museum. So just for five minutes, Napalm Death would appear in the, in the walkie-talkie system of the V&A and then disappear. And so these were, these were some kind of action shots. And I just saw it as a, as a demo work, as a, as, a, as a way of me doing a demonstration. And so if I had school groups come in, I would do them for school groups. And they could take away the ceramic or the clay record as a, as a memento. But it, 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 it got picked up for this tour and it, it toured around the UK and they, they recreated the whole um, scenario with the, with the, with the turntables, with the, with the potter's wheels and, um, and with a film of the original event. And for the th third disruption, I did four in total, or I tried to do four. Um, I got inspired by Keith Moon and his drum kit and he used to blow his work up at the end of um, of the performance with the Who. And I just loved the formal arrangement of the drum kit as much as anything, and this inspired a set of, a set of drawings. And, and I proposed to the V&A that my second lunchtime disruption would be me recreating, or my recreation of Keith Moon exploding his drum kit in the, uh, at the end of the concert. So 
I kind of put it to the V&A, and um, this is the health and safety officer at the, at the V&A. And I put it to him, and initially it was like, it's just, just no, no way, Ron, kind of high security alert, uh, the fact that you might bring explosives into the V&A just aren't going to happen. And I was just like, you try these things, you, you kind of put a proposal, sometimes you get there and sometimes you don't. I thought nothing more of it, went home, came in the next morning, opened the studio door and somebody had slipped under, uh, under the door a guide to, to making cherry bombs, which were the explosives that um, Keith Moon used to use, uh, he used in America. And then five minutes later, Martin, the health and safety officer, came past and said, did you get my um, little note? And essentially, he was an amateur um, explosives um, enthusiast. And at the weekend, he would, he would blow things up in, in various places. And he had this shed. And so we started to work together then. And I would go to his shed in uh, the middle of Kent. And we started blowing up um, these drums, these clay drums. And um, once we'd done the test, then... We got the okay to do the explosion in the in the VNA, and um, there, were, there were these series of discs that the VNA produced. I wanted to commemorate this one, so everyone might be able to take away um, a memento of the of the event. So I used this idea of these discs that are in the jewellery department. Uh, I made my ceramic drum kit, my clay drum kit, and it went on display in the theatre and performance area for for a month prior to the performance, and then it was taken. Uh, ceremoniously to the to the the strongest lecture theatre in the um, V&A is a concrete bunker essentially, and it was taken there. And then here's Martin wiring up the explosives into the um, the drum kit. Kind of audience were invited, um, and it was a three-minute work. I played my generation um, on a turntable on the left-hand side, and the work detonated with a little bit of um, um, help from myself. And um, so I achieved this, and um, it's something that, again, I've returned to, and everyone took away these, it was called Moon, and a set of kind of edition number discs that, that blew out of the top of the, the drum kit were then picked up and, and could be taken by the audience. And then um, I was invited to go to... Um, it was a day of performance and music at Matt's Gallery in London called Super Woofer. And um, so I made a new drum kit. I wanted to do, do this again. I made a terracotta clay drum kit. And it went on display for the day. And then um, in the evening, um, it did this. <laughs> So this was the kind of post-event, and um, I think I've got one more drum kit in me that I want to do. I want to do the 70s kit, where he went to complete excess. He had a set of about 40 drums with two cymbals, and I just want to do that as the last of this sequence of, of works. And then for the final lunchtime disruption, I'd start with Napalm Death um, as a record, and I just thought, wouldn't it be amazing if Napalm Death could come into the V&A and play as the final disruption at lunchtime. Um, and so, um, just one of the, I don't know Napalm Death, I'd, I'd admired them for years, I remember them on the John Peel show playing out and um, just wanting to um, 
they just came out as this burst of energy, this kind of raw power, and uh, unlike anything else I'd ever heard. And I just wanted to, if I could, use them as a kind of a power source for the, for the work. And so I started, uh, it was just almost asking around, does anybody know Napalm Death? And if you ask around enough, you start to find people who do know um, somebody else and eventually found out someone who knew someone who knew someone else and we got to the band they were on tour in America I invited them to come in to play through a sound system that I wanted to create and and they just and they went yeah sounds sounds interesting so um, once they'd agreed I started then working on trying to work out what kind of sound system I might create and the band are from Birmingham, Great Bar, and I'm, I'm from West Bromwich, and we almost were living opposite each other. There was a, there's a kind of a, a hill in between, but essentially my estate and where they were born on their housing estate are, 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 are next to each other. And they're separated by these tower blocks, and these were a major feature of my, my childhood. They were on the estate where I lived. I went to school with the kids who... who, who who were in these flats, and they're the backdrop of, of my own childhood, really. So I wanted to use something that perhaps connected us. So start to work from these, these tower blocks, to think about them as a, as a sound system, and also maybe influences um, in terms of the ceramics collection as well, um, in terms of these blue and yellow tiles of Della Robbia um, that were in, in the galleries. But essentially thinking of the tile, a tiled sound system, the, the tower blocks were covered in blue and yellow tiles. So I started looking at modular systems. And we, we agreed that Napalm Death could come into the European galleries. And um, they were under reconstruction at the time. So it, it felt like it was the perfect place. It was a place in transformation. And we would similarly try and transform material um, through them. So um, these are some kind of models and further drawings. And it was all due to, to happen on the 22nd of um, March as, as the kind of last, last disruption. And um, got the materials ready. We're all ready to go. We're going to make them over a week in the, in the European galleries. And then um, I think three days before, it was cancelled. And... Um, the reason that was given in the press release was that um, there was fears that the, the noise um, that Napalm Death would make would start to kind of undermine the, the museum's foundations and would potentially um, bring down the V&A. So um, whether that was the case or not, I'm not sure. But from a from a from a, an event that had, had, had made quite a bit of news, and you know people were intrigued, and the tickets had gone on sale and sold out within within seconds. It was a free event for people to come to, um, and they sold out within within minutes. But you know it it had stayed r relatively low key. But once it had been cancelled and the reason was given, it just became national news for uh, a couple of days, and it became kind of headlines in the Times. It became the leading article, and. Um, they were wondering whether the V&A may have scuppered one of the great artistic performances of our time. And so it just set up, in, in a way, it was almost like, it was deeply, I was so devastated when, you know, my, it was, this was my dream that Napalm Death would come into the V&A and play. But in, in a way, it was almost the, the making of it. And um, 
I did meet Shane, the bassist. Um, we were both invited to the opening of David Bowie, which was happening uh, that week. And we agreed that if we got a chance, we would, we would do it. And um, I'm looking so uh, not rock and roll in that picture. Um, but it did create a lot of noise and I did get a lot of offers to, to re restage it and recreate it. And ultimately, um, I had, the, I had the pick of, of where I might go, and De La War Pavilion got, got in touch, which are, it's a kind of huge icon of, of modernism, really, on the south coast. And um, the head of program was a huge Napalm Death fan, and it, this, would have, this, for him, was his, was his dream as well. And so I just thought it was the perfect venue. If it couldn't be the V&A, this, this kind of modernist, um, kind of almost the pinnacle of modernism, as against the flats that, that I knew, were, there was such a kind of... Um, difference really uh, uh, in terms of this post-war development that I thought it was the perfect perfect match so we went we went we went for it and um, called it bustle home which is the estate um, these are the plans for the um, for where the speakers would go did some tests in my studio in Plymouth and gradually started making the 80 80 plus speakers that would be needed for the event um, transported to the Delaware pavilion and then over the course of a week, we worked behind the scenes and, and started tiling all of the AT speakers in the, in the blue and yellow tiles. And we set up on the day in readiness for the band. We had liquid clay in the top of the speakers as well. So we had, we had all these different states of material um, all coming together in this, in this work. And then it was set up for the band. We had, we had an audience of... I don't know, 500 plus, again, a free, a free concert um, we invited to it. And it was just such an, a strange mix of people. We had kind of grindcore fans, kind of huge Napalm Death fans who'd followed them for years. We had ceramics enthusiasts and, um, and artists and uh, people who'd just maybe heard about it and would just come and just see what had happened uh, and what might happen. And... Even before it started, there was, a, there was a strange tension in the audience. There was just such an unlikely crowd. And um, this is Sean, the tiler, who I've worked with um, on a number of projects, and he, he did the tiling um, on the project. This is some of the audience, kind of in readiness for the event. And everyone was displaced. The, the, the band were not playing to, to the audience. They were playing to these set of speakers. Um, the audience were around the outside, so no one was quite where they should be. And so the event began, and essentially I was trying to break down material through, through the band. And um, so the tiles, it, it was, I didn't know exactly how it was going to transpire, but I was thinking that gradually these tiles would, would come off. And kind of, Sean just did such a good job with the tiling that... Kind of after about 10 minutes, I think we had two tiles that had fallen off the whole, the whole thing. And people had come all this way and um, were expecting explosions, I think. And, and in my mind, that was fine. Um, you know, what happens, happens. But for the audience, I, ju I just don't think it was, it was enough. And so, you know, we had three, four, we had a few more tiles. And the band, the band were really, really going for it. And... Kind of the audience, were, the audience were, were, were into the music and they're just looking at these inanimate objects. And I kind of just 
the atmosphere changed completely after about 15 minutes, I'd say 20 minutes. And, and then I was, stand, I was just watching and then suddenly this guy jumped over the perimeter fence and got into the, the main pit and the fencing was never there to keep the audience out, it was to protect the audience in, in case the, the, the sound system came down. And um, as he got in, it's just thought, oh my God, it's like someone getting into a lion's den. And um, my main concern at this point was that the, the, the system might fall down on him. And just knowing how much weight was in the speakers, I just thought it, it could kill him. And, um, but he, he got in and he, he just gave it a good kick in in the end. <laughs> and... In a way, this, this, this was the explosion. People had come for explosion. And the tension in the audience was so great that this, this was the release, I think. And eventually, eventually security got hold of him and, and he was taken out and the band kept playing. But it became a bit of a trigger then for numerous people to come in and just, just add to it. And, and ultimately, this was... This was the, the debris that was left. And I thought this might be the result of what might happen. You would have this kind of breakdown um, of, this, of, this, of this system, this social system, this, this kind of building. But I just never imagined that it would be through the audience, that the interaction and the audience themselves would, would, do, the, would do the damage. And, and someone tweeted, and I just thought, God, if this is what the audience thought, that in a way they saw it as a, uh, somewhere a mix between a gig, an art installation, and a 60s psychological experiment, then for me that is an absolute success. And, um, and this is myself and Shane after in the, in the back room. And um, I, I was just asked to, to, um, to show this work out in Taiwan um, last week, and I think there was a bit of misunderstanding. I think they thought that it might be Napalm Death that were going to come, but actually all I had were the two tiles that were um, the remnants of the, the performance. That's all, that's all that is left, and uh, I think they were deeply disappointed. <laughs> that's, all, that's all I can say, really. Um, but it, it led to another and an, a number of works, and the, the, the sound in the auditorium was so loud, there was the sound inside the... The, the speaker system, but there was also sound being almost directed at it, kind of sub-bass, to try and kind of dislodge the tiles. And you had an option to wear earplugs for the night, and I just thought, I've spent so long on this, I just want unadulterated noise. But unfortunately, it was just coming in on my right-hand side, and I just lost, I lost my hearing, and I thought it was temporary, but um, I've got it back mainly, but I've definitely lost some of my hearing on the right-hand side. Now, Initially, I thought, oh, that's all right. It's like a bit of an oral tattoo that I carry around as a, as a memory. But now it's really annoying. And I've just got this kind of constant ringing in my, in my ears. And so that became a bit of an inspiration for, for another word. I'd, this idea of mute and trying to dampen things down and almost tr stop energy escaping has been a bit of a feature of works. And I wanted to produce a, another sound system. I was asked to to do a commission for National Museum Wales. And so I wanted to do a follow-on sound system and um, put some ideas to them. And um, I wanted to use kind of gold tiles and propose this, this gold sound system that would be tiling on one side and um, speakers filled with clay on the other. And so this was, this was a survey show about 
um, contemporary ceramics and what it might be and what it could do. And so it, it ended the show in a separate room and um, I proposed it to be built in, in situ. And I guess I'd, I'd been inspired by that audience interaction and, and increasingly thought, well, how, how could the audience become involved in this work? So I proposed two turntables um, that, and they would, the audience could come in and could play the works. Um, the, I'd called it mute and I was thinking about trumpets. So the gold was taken from the idea of brass instruments. And so all the records that were on the back wall were all trumpet records, whether it be jazz, whether it be brass band, whether it be soul, but there'd be a, there'd be a trumpet on the, on the cover and I'd, I'd blocked all of those out by pouring paint into the, into the trumpet. And the audience could choose any of the, any of the albums and, and, and play them on the decks, but you couldn't mix. You just had to put the two tracks on at the same time. And what I was hoping that, almost like Walls of Jericho, which talk about trumpets playing, and if the trumpet sound it hits the right resonance, then the walls will come falling down. And I was hoping that by getting these resonances and getting the trumpets to kind of match up, that then the work would start to disintegrate. So this was the work in situ, and Sean came in um, and did the tiling. So it was all. So as you came into the room, you had no real indication um, initially you, until you walked around. And so this is what confronted you as you came into the space. This kind of gold wall, this wall of wall of sound ultimately. And then as you went round it, you then saw that the the speakers and the sound system was there. And people then could take these records and um, play the tracks. And there was a real concern that the records would be taken and they were worried that that kind of interaction would just um, lead to maybe people taking the work with them. But what actually happened is that people brought records and they left them and there was kind of 30 or 40 records. I started with, I think, about 20, but in the end there were 20 or 30 and it, it just got added to over the period of, of time. And what I did ask is that it wasn't clean, so the work didn't particularly break down, the clay cracked, but the fingerprints built up and up and up, so this kind of touch developed over the, over the work. And in museums, people often want to clean, but I, I just ask that all those, all those marks remained in the work. And um, how long are we doing? We're doing okay. Um, just, just the last couple of uh, projects. I've been interested in skateboarders for a while and this, this idea of kind of trying to get over something. And um, this was in Brighton. I saw skateboarders kind of hour after hour trying to jump over this, this bin. And it was kind of brilliant and it was kind of absurd as well. And I, I kind of like the notion that you would just launch and take yourself somewhere else. And I was increasingly aware that skateboarders were not always welcome in, in an urban environment. And this was... I think this was in America, but in Birmingham, the main war memorial, no skateboarding, and they kind of go to some lengths to keep skateboarders off these, these edges. And I guess it, this tied into kind of thoughts about um, post-war architecture again and the use of the ramp. This is Dudley Zoo and um, Lebetkin's tectons, which were kind of built for that zoo, but often incorporated ramps for the, for the animals, and that became a series of my own drawings thinking about ramps and how you might get over these, these objects and, and ultimately became a proposal for a, for a bench, a skatable bench. 
And so put this forward as part of a touring show called Acts of Making, whereby the, the skaters would become the sculptors. So through the act of grinding, they would start to, to round off these, these benches, these stones. And I'd called it Tombstone, and um, I started working with um, masonry, uh, monumental masons who, who made tombstones up in, up in the West Midlands. And so we made the frames in, in Plymouth, where I'm based, and then worked with the, 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 the stonemasons and produced these, these series of benches. And we had three goes at it, really. And again, it was a, an experiment, a social experiment, a material experiment. And the first two, I wanted them to break down as much as I could, but they were just so soft that as soon as the skateboarders hit them, they just stopped dead and it threw the skateboarders off. And it was a bit embarrassing to tell the truth just these these were um, kind of nationally known skateboarders that had been invited and every time they tried to get onto the bench they were just thrown off and so they ended up just stacking up the benches and and starting to to jump over it and this was in this was in Bilston High Street in um, in the West Midlands and as well as it being used as a skateboard bench it was used as a, a bench as it was outside Iceland um, as I say, there were three chances to do this. And um, so the second one, I, I hardened up the stone and, and used marble, um, a kind of classic tombstone material. And this was in Newcastle for the event. Again, skaters were invite, invited as a competition to come in and skate the benches. And it, it worked perfectly. But ultimately, there wasn't much kind of sculpting of the actual block it, it pretty much stayed around there was some scratching but it didn't really work and so finally it came to it came to Plymouth just just by chance as part of its national tour so I made a much longer bench got a stone that was kind of midway between the two and and essentially we had a number of benches in the previous um, work but there was just one bench for people to skate and um, this was this was the ledge competition and then this was at the beginning. And then at the end, it was, it was beginning to, to just change shape. And it's been six months now, and I, I kind of visited um, not that long ago. And, and they've continued to work at it. So it is changing. And it, it, in terms of time, this one's a much longer, longer piece. And they use it as a kind of regular bit of kit. But it, it is also gradually um, softening. And, and they, are, they are changing its, its form. And... Um, just in terms of time now, probably the last, last project that uh, I'm going to have time to talk about is Heavy Rock, Plymouth Sound. I was invited um, to make a work that was inspired by the, the, the collection of Plymouth Museum and Art Gallery. And I chose um, this work, a painting, which is called Laying the Foundation Stone of Plymouth Breakwater. And it was the it was a commemorative painting, really, for the first stone that was being dropped out at sea to create this enormous mile-long wave breaker a kind of, to stop the, the power of the ocean so that the, the port of Plymouth would be protected and the navy would be protected and so they could take safe, safe anchor. And by doing so, also protecting the city itself. And I didn't know where this work was going. I just, maybe because I'd worked with Napalm Death, the idea of heavy rock, and kind of keeping that music connotation felt important. But I was just fascinated by this rock that's on the front of this boat that's been taken out to sea. And the, there was, a, there was a, a flotilla of people that went out with it in their boats, as well as a, as well as a band. 
that played. And I just started to imagine how I might maybe reinterpret and recreate this scene. And they, they produced a whole series as, as part of this um, design of the breakwater, there were, there were scale models that were given out as almost like a, a promotional tool to, to, to get public um, awareness up and to, and to, gain, to gain funds to, 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 to take this, this work on. And this is the breakwater. It sits a mile out to sea, a mile long, and in front of it, there are these wave breakers which essentially are protecting the breakwater itself. So they're the first line of defense, 100-ton concrete blocks, um, and although they seem monumental and enormous when you, when you see them on, on dry land and close up, essentially they're like pebbles and they get, they get picked up and moved around by the sea and, and changed and broken down. And they're cast at a quayside in, in Plymouth, uh, a place called Oriston, um, which is where the original stone for the breakwater was taken. So these kind of histories were overlaying. And so I wanted to get involved in this casting process. It wasn't a ceramic project, but it was about mold making and trying to almost use some of those processes with other, other materials. And got to know the, the guys who, who did the casting, Brian and Lee, who'd worked for years on these blocks. They work at, in the docks and they come, they come out from the docks to do this casting process. So it's, it's a bit of a day out for them, but they've never seen a, a block dropped. They've never gone out and seen the blocks actually dropped out at sea. So I wanted to bring them into the, not physically into the work, but I wanted them to be a part of the work if I could. And this is, this is where they're cast, and they remain in, in place to cure for a number of weeks before they're then taken out to sea. So the tide coming in and out hardens them off so they can then get picked up by a, um, a specially made barge called the camel, which picks up, goes in at low tide, and then when the tide comes in, it, it picks up the 100-ton block a whole crew, a diving crew from the dockyard come in and then um, it's tugged, the camel is tugged out to a, to a position, uh, a designated position that's been um, fixed uh, on, on the breakwater or just off the breakwater. Um, you've got the block in place and then um, when, it's, when it gets in place, the camel is released by the tug and then a series of dinghies just very slowly and quite balletically pushed in in, in place and then at a given moment it's released and a 100 ton block is just dropped instantaneously and what having stood on there what I didn't realise that 100 tons of water is also thrown up at the same time so you get this enormous kind of uh, eruption and so I wanted to make this hidden process no one really sees this process in Plymouth um, it's, a, it's a Ministry of Defence um, contracted uh, obligation in which they are, they're asked to drop um, up to 12 blocks a year. So it's not secretive, but it's not, it's not public knowledge, but I wanted to make it a public event. So I proposed that I would adapt one of these blocks, a wave breaker block, and thought about different ways that I might date it or commemorate this, this block being dropped, um, and thinking about semaphore and kind of other, other coding, um, the idea of waves, maybe initially placing it on Plymouth Hoe before it was taken out. Um, but that was impossible, and and maybe and bringing Lee and Brian back into it. So in the end, it, it became as much about them. I wanted to commemorate them and the work that they do. So um, I proposed that they would have their names on the on the block in big in big letters, and um, increasingly started to think of it as a as a transmitter and thinking about how when I first proposed it, there was a 
there was quite a lot of negativity and they said, well, this is a public piece of work that no one can see and it will be underwater. So, you know, how is this a public work? And I kind of felt it was a public work and, and maybe the way that, that you might get a sense of it is if we could transmit from it so it becomes like a, um, a beacon that sent out a signal. So the drawings became increasing about this block having a transmitter inside, a radio signal, and it would pick up sound from the block and transmit back to Plymouth. So I proposed this, that we'd, that we'd have a, um, an underwater a hydrophone um, cast into the block and had various meetings with um, Royal Navy, with Babcock International, with the Queen's Harbour Master to, to, to okay it and um, started making hydrophones that would be embedded into the, into the block, quite DIY, quite low-tech things. Um, started working with the, with the original mold itself and looking at where I might play that, place the hydrophone. And also a, a plaque, each, each time a block is cast, they, they date it. And so I asked if we could just change that and we could have B and L for Brian and Lee so that they go in and so they chart these blocks as they move. So forever this would be known as the BL block. So Brian and Lee would be out there, like a burial at sea in some respect. Um, and so this was made, this, this was the special stamp. This is Brian and Lee with their, with their stamp and preparing the ground for the block. Um, and then we filled, these are, these, these are the transmitters that are, are inside the block and are filled with 100 tons of concrete. And we weren't sure whether it would actually work okay, whether, whether the, the transmitters would just get embedded, but it kind of worked perfectly. And so we had these, these kind of portals that would allow the sound to come in. And um, so it was all good to go. This was the block ready. Um, we had the underwater sound expert, um, a local uh, Tom the Whale, as he's known, who records whales all around the world, who, who started taking recordings off the block when it was waiting and curing. And this was the system that would go out to the breakwater and would be housed on this MOD um, kind of bunker on the breakwater. This was the two um, like goalposts really that the, that the dive crew used to drop the block in place. So this was all put in place. So we're all good to go. We had, we had the band kind of ready. The Royal Marine Band had been invited to play. And um, I asked Will Gregory from Goldfrap whether he would produce a specially commissioned score, and he agreed. So um, he produced a soundtrack that would accompany this whole event, um, and this was the musical score. The Royal Marine Band um, rehearsed and were, and were ready to go. Um, I work at a, a studio called Cast, which is an artist-run studio and gallery space. We had an exhibition in there, and I, I recreated a... Um, a wooden replica of the mold, so people could, even if they couldn't see, it might get a sense of the scale of these these things on on land. So you could um, you could go into this mold and get a sense of this volume or this absence of volume. And on the opening night, the, the Royal Marine Band of the opening night of the exhibition, the Marine Band came and played in the in the block. So as you entered the gallery, you had no idea that the Royal Marine Band were in there. And then you'd enter, and there was the full well, a quintet playing um, in the in the block. So this was the opening night, and it should have accompanied the launch. We had everything ready, um, but unfortunately, the, the one thing that I could never control was the weather. And three times we tried to. We tried to do this event, and three times it was 
it was cancelled. And so ultimately, again, I'm, I'm not sure whether this has been a kind of epic fail, really. Um, but in terms of what was done around it and the work that was done in terms of the work that was at cast and, the, and what it generated in terms of interest in the city, even though we couldn't do it on numerous occasions in 2016, we're now looking to, um, to do it in 2020, which is a big, it's a big, it's a big um, date in, in, the, in the calendar in, in Plymouth, because I think it's the 200th anniversary of the, of the, of the Mayflower sounding, sailing. So the idea is that we, we ultimately get to do the drop in 2020. And then to complete the um, exhibition, we had the Royal Marine Band come in and did the first public performance of Will Gregory's um, music in, in, the, in the exhibition area and so we're left with this block out at sea waiting to be activated and I think that's the end of my talk thank you Hello. Hello. Just wondering why, how come the weather meant that you couldn't do it? Well, yeah, I think it was difficult to know, really, because um, for them to drop the block and they go out on that, on that barge, it, it has to be pretty, pretty flat. And um, so if there's any kind of swell, then they do postpone, and they do that anyway. They, they have a number of dates that they put in the calendar, and we, we arranged three dates that it could be, and... Ideally, the first one would have been that opening night, the exhibition, the band playing in the block mold, and then everyone would go out to see, and we'd arrange the whole flotilla to go out with it. So there were, there were chartered boats, but people had also made, like using oil drums and planks, they'd made um, vessels that they were going to go out with, and we also had some wild swimmers that were swimming out to the... So I don't know how it would have gone with like people bobbing around and um, people on oil drums, but... You know, it was it was good to go, but and it it just it looked flat. But we just got the call, I think, the day before that it was that it was not possible. And then three more times we tried to do it, and I'd always proposed that it needed to be a bit like a rave, and that we should be able to we'd have to do it almost at maybe an hour's notice. So we just wait for the go ahead from the the dive crew. And you just have to have a mobile phone signal. And once you've got the signal, you just got to get to the breakwater. And that was that was how I proposed we might do it. But it was it was just the turnaround was too quick. And to work with an organisation and all the crowd that were involved, um, I mean, there was a you could book a ticket for the um, boat. So I think up to about 250 people could go out there. It's just just trying to manoeuvre that many people that quickly just was impossible. So we had to set it. And we just had three goes, but that first night, I st I'm still not sure quite why it, we, why it didn't. And in the end, it, it's not in my control. I'm, I was completely, like, you know, in the end, it's it's a, it's a, it's a manoeuvre that they have to do, come what may, and those blocks have to go. So they kept holding it. So it was the last block left on the key, but eventually it had to go. And I think 
I think I was away for one weekend the whole summer. I'd been there for every weekend in case it could happen. I went away for one weekend, I came back, and they said the block had gone. So it's just like, <sighs> what can you do? But it's there now, and we've either got an option in terms of hooking it up to get the signal back from it, or what I'd like to do is is to, to reenact that drop-in. I think the block can be repeated, and we can, we can use that same um, stamp. We can put the hydrophones in. So I think, I think we can still do it. I kind of, in the end, I'm an optimist for all these works, and uh, it's kind of hope over logic, I think, really, most of the time. But I, I just hope in 2020 we might, we might be able to get to a point where everyone can come out and see this kind of uh, this event happen. But I was gutted. But I don't know if it's a failure or not. Ultimately, I'm not sure. Um, I think. Um, well, I'll leave you. you can you can decide. Perhaps they they paid me in the end. So. <laughs> I've got uh, I've got two questions. Maybe the second one will lead to a third. Um, what was the what was the historical um, usage or what kind of expeditions did the Mayflower go on? What what sorry? Wait, wait sorry, was that the boat's name? What was the boat's name? The the one that influenced heavy rock that had the giant uh, rock. I don't it. know the name of the boat, but it was the it was the first it was the boat that was used to lay the foundation stone. So they put the they put the rock on the front. That was the first oh, I piece see. of limestone. Okay, sorry, I see, so that yeah. travelled out. They had the fanfare and they had the mare. And we had the mayor as well. We had the mayor ready to go. So we had all, we all almost like a, an exploded view of that painting, really. To a certain extent, it was quite a literal um, translation of it. Okay, sure. Uh, uh, are you a West Brom fan? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> My dad used to, he used to um, run a fishing club called the Golden Throstle Angling Club, and that was all because the golden throstle was the symbol for West Brom. So everyone was West Brom, except our family, who were Birmingham, and still are. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> You were at you were at the V and A, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, it, yeah, I, th I hope that it's genuine in that I, I, I don't know what's going to happen myself. So, you know, the audience similarly have to enter into that. But 
I guess I do start to get wrapped up in perhaps what I think the audience expectation. I don't try to necessarily work to that or satisfy, but I, you know, in that Napalm Death event, I could just feel the audience around going, this is so boring, you know, and we want, we want something more metal. And I quite enjoy, I guess I did kind of enjoy the fact that I'd not given an expectation. Uh, so part of me enjoys it, but with the event, with the block drop, it just this kind of accumulation of, of cancellation that I had no, no control over, just it did wear me down a little bit, I think. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did, and I, I don't think we ever had any complaints as such. Um, and sometimes, you know, with the cancellation at the V&A, it kind of can build the the expectation for it inadvertently. You know, I created a huge audience for the for the for the next event at Della Wall Pavilion. So, you know, I don't know if it'll if it has lodged in the kind of public's conscience in, in Plymouth, because the breakwater is so out to sea, you're not really aware of it, even though it does this massive job, you know, this monumental job. And, and for me, it was just the chance to get people out there and to see what an incredible thing this, this is. Uh, so yeah, I, 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 it, it is mentioned every now and then, and um, there are ongoing discussions about how we might um, kind of redo, redo this, and kind of all, the, all the things are in place, and the Royal Marine Band, were, were, were so enthusiastic for them to play a kind of new piece of work from a contemporary composer, you know, was, was, was brilliant. So, yeah, who else do I know? That's it. That's as, that's as many people as I know. Just of, I think exactly that. That I, I, if possible, that people might be able to take something away, and um, and that it's free, and that these are public events, and um, they've come out of a kind of notion of public funding, I guess, and um, and that I've never put a charge on any on any of these events beyond a kind of nominal booking fee, I think, for the Napalm Death. So um, yeah, I think for me, it's a, it's a, it's a big part that something might be in that there might be a transaction that enables something to be taken and uh, increasingly with those um, those lunchtime disruptions yeah you that you might take a, a, a memento with you and ultimately people did take those tiles as well and um, you know there's a point where the band were signing ceramic tiles on the at the end of the the, uh, the event so yeah I, th I think for me that is they're public works and um, kind of nobody necessarily owns them everyone everyone owns them but you might just be able to take a in some of them, not all of them, but in, you might be able to take some small part um, away. I think that for me has has felt significant, and it's not always possible in every in every event. But yeah, I, if I can, or if it if it feels right, that I I will factor I will factor that that in, and that just that yeah that small disc might just encapsulate that that whole event that that people have been at. It is a souvenir, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think V&A have got the only four other four tiles of the, of the napalm death event now. I think other people took the, the, the speakers, I think some people took them, turned them into bedside tables. So I think in Bexhill, there's people next to their beds have got full tiled blocks now with the, uh, imagine with an alarm clock on top. It just plays Napalm Death at 7 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I think I think it was possibly more difficult when I when I first perhaps came came out came out of the Royal College. Um, came out yeah, came out as a but I, did, I I started as a product designer many years ago at college. Kind of found that far too restricting, I think, as a as, as something. I, I was proposing stuff that ultimately I was told didn't fit the course, and so I kind of left. And ceramics almost felt like it had that freedom of, of breadth to me anyway. And I, I was oblivious to, to any kind of placement of it. It was just a material and you could, you could make functional stuff, you could make work that sculpture. And I've, I've just always held onto that in my own head and, and not necessarily been, I've gone where, I've just gone where either people have asked me and sometimes that is a self-selecting thing, but also where I've felt, found it's interesting. And so, you know, Camden Art Centre and often publicly funding spaces and museums have often been the places where I've shown work because it's been necessarily, necessarily a commercial outcome from, from, from these, these works. Um, and to me, I, I like them because they're open as well in terms of that they're not, they're not, they're similarly not putting a category on it. it it's work and I, I see it in the realm of, of sculpture and installation and performance um, with a particular material and I feel in, with hindsight, quite for, you know, very fortunate to have had that training in this kind of process, really, and I've applied it elsewhere, whether it be with bread or concrete, or uh, and so it, it keeps coming through. But I've, I've never felt that you know I, I was I was really keen to go to go into the ceramics department, but not as a ceramicist as such. And you know, my, the hardest bit for me was kind of saying what what piece of ceramics I'd be inspired by in the museum, and I just. I was, in the interview, I was completely, because uh, it's almost not where I look, really. But the radio became, oh, my God, there's something I can latch onto here. And it was, it was awful, really. It was the world's best ceramics collection, and I, I went for the radio in the, uh, in the studio. But um, I, for me, that puts me maybe on the outside of a lot of things, and it, it does mean that you are a little bit peripheral in all ways, but I think interesting things happen at those peripheries and, and where disciplines and materials and processes start to overlap. And, um, and I think that's, that has happened, that, or that is happening a, a lot more. I, I just feel that's less and less of a, a, an issue now in terms of the, the, the use of materials in, in fine art departments and, and across design and where, you know, there's some interesting mixing.
Thank you. Thank you very much.